The topic for this panel is Growing Along Spiritual Lines, and to share their experience, strength, and hope are Joe C. and Joe R. And Joe C. And Joe C., you're up first. Hi, everyone. My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm the growing one. I uh, see recovery as a phenomena. And what I mean by phenomena is we know it exists. We all have proof of recovery, but it's hard to explain it. And uh, for those of us who might think, oh, I know exactly how recovery happens. I know exactly how it happened for me. We don't agree. We don't have consensus. I think uh, recovery, like spirituality, is a, very much a, a pathless land. And we know it exists. It's fun to try to describe it. But it's, well, it's going to be very difficult to... Uh, I get um, an agreement on exactly what happened. I mean, I have a uh, narrative of what happened, what it was like, and, uh, you know, uh, what it's like now. That's really just a, a narrative, right? That's kind of articulating in an almost two-dimensional way what happened. But... How all those little twists and turns happened, I, I don't know for sure. I think the key to spirituality is humility. I, I'm a member of the uh, Beyond Belief agnostic group. If uh, Joe and I were on a 12-step call together, I mean, it wouldn't be a war of worldviews. I mean, we'd be there trying to help the new man find their salvation, their way. I would share my experience and he would share his. And you can't argue with experience. You try expertise, you build some resistance. And I really don't think I have any expertise. I, I have experience, lots of it. If you see me saying, keep an open mind, I hope you'll say to me, you first, Chisholm. Oops. <laughs> because that's good medicine forever. That's not day one or step one. That's good medicine forever. We all have to keep an open mind. I have to keep an open mind because I never know who my teachers are. And... They could be anywhere, and they could be anybody, and they could have any length of sobriety. I mean, some people, it seems to be, I notice it in some meetings, getting up and declaring their sobriety date. And okay, but that's not a currency to me. You get involved in service, and you understand currency better. I get one vote in my home group. No one says, well, you've been around a while. You get two votes now. I get one vote. Whether you're there 35 years or 35 days, you get one vote. Why? Because what you have to say matters just as much as the other person. I mean, look at what I learn about addiction 
from the new people uh, and addiction treatment. I mean, uh, well, I will tell you this, when I got sober, Led Zeppelin was still together. Uh, and uh, and we, we've learned a little bit more about addiction and recovery uh, since then. And I'm not out there, and the, the new people are. I mean, they come with more knowledge of addiction and maybe of recovery than I have. What they don't have is they don't have experience with living sober. They uh, probably have dread and fear, something I still have lots of, so we're going to get along just fine. I don't think, uh, you know, we come to believe, because I think uh, belief is like a favorite color. I mean, you just have one. And uh, if I came here and you said, what's your favorite color? And I said, red. And I said, well, to get sober, it has to be blue. I might say, okay, because I want to belong. But my favorite color isn't going to change. I, I think we come to understand, uh, not come to believe. I, I mean, I really didn't know what I believed when I came here. I, I knew what I had to say, because I said it a lot. But, I, you know, I, I really didn't know what it meant. I came here not believing in God, and I experimented with it a little bit, and, and I don't now. I'm not convinced I'm right, but that's just my experience. And when I came here, I got the impression that believing and belonging were synonymous. That in order for me to belong, I had to believe. And we hear an expression that is a double-edged sword, fake it till you make it. And I think it's a double-edged sword because it's good to try new things. I mean, my sobriety, my learning to be a man, because I was kind of young when I got here, my learning to be a member of AA was, you know, acting. You know, acting like somebody else, saying what somebody else said. And in the absence of knowing what your values are, at least it's a good start. And, uh, but hopefully, eventually, uh, you do find your values. In, in my uh, search for God, I found my values. Carl Jung uh, had a lot to do with AA in his own little way. And I mean, as a historian, I'm, you must understand I'm dyslexic and um, I have other disabilities too. <laughs> so my recount of my own history or our history, uh, I'll give you my misunderstanding. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, he, he did have a role to play, that's, that's for sure. Um, he said something um, long after AA was around in a book uh, called Man and His Symbols. Your vision will become clear only when you can look inside your own heart who looks outside dreams, and who looks inside awakes. And um, that's good medicine forever. And uh, I, I couldn't describe what I saw when I looked inside. It scared me. And, and I think seeking is part of all of us, and, and my drinking and, and drug abuse was definitely 
uh, a seeking experience. I had an existential angst that I thought I found the answer to in uh, alcohol. It turned out to be fool's gold. It had many of the characteristics of uh, satisfying that existential angst, but it, it was an outside solution. And uh, we need a, down there there's a sign, uh, there is a solution and, and I believe it's an inside solution. And even, there are plenty of other outside solutions. I, I think sobriety and um, spirituality is not an extreme sport. It isn't going from one extreme to another. And I can use AA as a better dream than drinking, but not some place where I will become awake. Because I can be, um, you know, hiding out in plain view. And I can do it here in AA, I can do it from the podium. I might look exposed to you, but that's up to me. I can hide out here as well as the people in the back or the people uh, out on the street. So it, it's about my uh, vision of me. And, and what I found in AA is uh, I did find my own values. I found it from working the steps. And, and I'm one of these bleeding heart liberals, the no musts in AA. I was uh, giving a, a Mel C. Uh, we were having a discussion. <laughs> uh, on our uh, trip to uh, uh, the um, Canadian Eastern uh, Regional Alcoholics Anonymous Assembly. I don't know. It means Sarasa, anyway. And in a dyslexic way, I'm sure I got one of those things wrong. You know, he picked me up. Uh, I mean, he's that kind of guy. You ask him something, he'll say yes, and then figure it out later. He's wearing a suit and tie, and I said, who are you trying to impress? And he goes, well, you know, um, show up, suit up, la, 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 la. And I go, yeah, I, I know the drill. But my point to him was it's not the medium isn't the message. Just show up. He uh, was razzing me this morning. Joe, what are you doing in a suit and tie? Well, I mean, pl plenty of people will tell you that they don't care what other people think. To prove it, you've got to wear a bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> I really do believe it's um, not the uh, medium. It is uh, the message. And it isn't what I say, it's what you hear. And uh, you're going to hear it right, uh, you know, even whether I say it right or not. One of the things it says in the, uh, the big book, which I draw on a lot, is this was, is in, I don't know what page it's on, but it's around step three. And it says, the wording was, of course, quite optional. So long as we express the idea, voicing it without reservation. So a lot of the people I tend to work with, you know, are struggling with uh, God, higher power. It's really language. And because I really think, you know, when you look at, Freud's narcissism of small differences, right? We're 99% exactly the same, having 99% the same experience. And we can get so focused on that 1% that differentiates one person from another, one group from another, one fellowship from another. It's human nature. It's what we do. But 
I find that, you know, uh, like a lot of people think, well, man, you know, the 12 steps without God, I mean, that's, you're not an atheist, Joe, you're lazy, you're just taking half the work out. <laughs> and, and it's not half the work, it's just half the delegating, you know, it, and, and what, what Bill is saying to me is the words aren't important, but you better feel it. You better feel it in your gut. I enjoy the, you know, sort of uh, uh, debates as much as anybody, sort of the new atheists against the theologian scholars. I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but holding each other to a burden of truth is just silliness because it's in the heart, it's in our own heart. And what your experience is is great, but it isn't going to change who I am. It, my, I might learn something from it, but we're just talking about the same experience in a slightly different language. Whenever I'm confronted by someone I flat out disagree with, it's probably just a language barrier. We probably don't have to determine who's right, who's wrong, who's to blame. Nobody has to be to blame. We don't have to be to blame. Our parents don't have to be to blame. The groups don't have to be to blame. Intergroup doesn't have to be to blame. We're just all doing the best we can. And, you know, things look very different when nobody has to be to blame. And I feel like I belong when nobody has to be to blame. And belonging, that's very important to me. I, there's another B, and that's behaving. So I, I had to find out what it was I did believe, and, and really, I, I was so inauthentic when I got here. I would lie when it was completely unnecessary just to stay sharp. <laughs> you know, and... Um, you know, when you told me I had to believe to belong, I, it's not what you said, that's what I heard. <sighs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, no problem. And, um, but in working the steps, they are uh, really an act of faith because on the internet, there are some critics of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not as many as there are members, which says something. But... AA isn't an intellectual process. You can't think it out. You need to do it. It's a program of action. And I remember a, a sponsor of mine uh, in Montreal where I got sober. I, I was talking. He could see through my bullshit. The sponsor I have now, well, we kind of sponsor each other. Sponsors die if you live long enough. So, you know, found someone a little younger and... We kind of sponsor each other and, and tease each other a little bit. Um, well, his favorite line is, uh, I, I go, I got to talk. Sit down, talk. Blah, blah, blah. And he listens and he says, uh, so, Joe, you've heard this. You want me to co-sign that bullshit? <laughs> and... Um, you know, so I, I, I didn't really know what I uh, be believed, and I didn't know how to behave, and, and I desperately wanted to belong. I didn't want your program. I didn't respect you at all, but I sure wanted you to like me. 
That was very important to me. And uh, I used to do whatever I had to do to get you to like me. Now I, I still want you to like me. But now that I have a value system, I'm not willing to do anything to get that approval. That's, that's not as important. I, I prefer it. I like it. But, you know, my values are what guide me. And, and they are, and that's why, you know, someone brand new has as much to offer as someone, you know, 20 years sober. Because if they're living by a, a value system, it's just a direction. It isn't the distance behind them or the distance ahead of them. It's just a direction I'm moving in. And when I get off of my value system, and I do, it's kind of like a tightrope. You can't race to it and be there and say, I finished, spike the football, where's the trophy? You know, it's more like a tightrope. You can't go too fast. You know, you can't get too left or too right, and you sure can't go back, right? You know, so you best, you know, keep your eye one step at a time. My sponsor way back when uh, I was intellectualizing the process of recovery and he said to me Joe do you have faith that this program works or do you just believe this program works I thought John are you inviting me into a debate <laughs> I thought I had to give up my membership in the debate club but if I'm allowed back in I'm in okay what are we talking here and he's because uh, this sounds like a game of semantics. And he said, no, it, it's not. There's a difference. If I was to tie a rope between two 40-story buildings, I tell you I can roll a wheelbarrow across that rope with no wires, no net. You might say, yeah, John, I believe you. But if you had faith, you'd get in the wheelbarrow, sight unseen. <laughs> so Joe, do you believe the program works or do you have faith that the program works? And having faith means getting in the wheelbarrow. It means doing and then figuring out what it means later. I mean, we kind of assign meaning to it later anyway. That's kind of how we work. There is nothing you can do to prepare for recovery and there's nothing I seem to be able to do to prepare for life. I just need to be open to it and I need to feel like I belong somewhere and I belong here. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And uh, Joe R. will now speak. My name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic. I think I, I got invited because I had the same name as, the, as uh, Joe C. and uh, made it easy for you guys to remember our names. Did anybody else take a boat to get here this morning? I just want to find out if there's any other person in recovery living on Toronto Island. I, I didn't think so. Um, <laughs> it's a long story. Um, but I live on Toronto Island. Um, a couple of sort of 
factual things, uh, I am a Catholic priest. I've also been a, a school teacher and a school principal. So if you have resentments against anybody in any of those categories, please feel free to go. Um, I have, but I'm still here. What are you going to do? The other thing is, I, I confess to very... I've been around for a while. I think the last time I was at the ORC was at least 30 years ago. And I probably only went then because my sponsor told me to go. I do not like conferences. My thing's twisted. I do not like conferences, and it, it's nothing against conferences. It certainly isn't anything against AA. It's just that I spent an awful lot of my drinking years going to political conventions. And when I walked into this hotel for the first time in I don't know how long, yesterday, I started having flashbacks, you know. And, I mean, I remember vividly I was helping to run a campaign in a leadership convention and uh, it was, you know, I, I had lots and lots to drink and some stuff to smoke and my one and only experience with angel dust and it wasn't pleasant, you know. <laughs> That's 40 years ago, but I remember it very vividly. I found a stairwell I'd forgotten I knew was there. Um, and I had another remember when, but it's kind of X-rated, so we won't share it this morning. <laughs> but I do qualify. That should suffice to do that. What I would like to do is, uh, as Joe's called it, uh, my narrative. I want to share my narrative, particularly with, re with respect to uh, belief or spirituality, whatever you want to call it. I was uh, raised in the west end of Toronto and on Toronto Island in a fairly... Roman, Irish Roman Catholic family. Church at least every Sunday and sometimes twice and the whole works. And, and my mother was sort of in some ways the religious center of the family. Interesting enough, I realized that she really wasn't all that spiritual. She was very religious, but she wasn't all that spiritual. In fact, she was a rageaholic. And so religion to me always had this sort of rage attached to it. It was, a sort of, it was a very sort of rigid kind of Roman Catholicism. And, I, and some people would like to think that that's the only kind of Roman Catholicism, and, you know, go ahead if you want, I don't care. But it certainly was the reality of, of my upbringing. And I became agnostic, verging on atheist, probably when I was around 10 or 11, 12 years of age, uh, you know, when I, when I learned that if you, if you masturbated, you were going to hell, and I figured I was there. <laughs> on a daily basis. Huh? One of the, I, was, I taught at a school, and one of the kids one time said, is masturbation a mortal sin? I said, well, to commit a mortal sin, you have to deliberately turn away from God. And I said, I think most of you guys are just turning to Miss January. Um, anyways, I, I, went, I went through the motions. I could go to church. I could even do reading. I remember one time I was at 
over at the island, and it was a very warm weekend, Easter weekend, and it was extremely hot, and I passed out on the beach. It was April the 18th, and then I had to go do readings for uh, the Easter vigil, and I was so sick, I was lying in the back where the altar boys hang out. They had a pew, and I would sort of lie there between readings and stagger up and do the reading, so I could pretend I was a good Catholic. And, but I really didn't believe anything particularly. And then I decided to become a priest. Now, that, I, you know, that might seem a stretch, but, <laughs> but most of us who are alcoholics, you know, it, the only difference is that I didn't actually become a priest until I was sober for three years. Whereas some of you actually got married... <laughs> Well, we'll leave that. <laughs> um, and it really, it, it was a very, uh, you know, when I look back on it, it was very baffling to me in some ways, but it, it seemed the right thing to do at the time. It seemed what I wanted to do. And what's interesting is that I suppose in a lot of respects, my faith and my spirituality developed out of the process of the becoming a priest. When I had had a drinking problem since the time I was a kid. By this time I was in my mid-twenties. I was about 26, 27. When I got involved in this order, now you guys have read enough in the newspapers to know that the church, religious orders, diocese and that, aren't too alert to the problems that some of their priests or seminarians have, right? But I was just such a friggin' mess that they had to pay attention to it, you know? And they did. They sent me to a treatment center when I was in first year in the seminary. And I went to a treatment center for priests. I was the youngest one ever there. <laughs> I wasn't even a priest yet. And uh, the, pro the interesting thing is, too, really, one is that I wanted this for some reason, and I don't know why, but I wanted it. And I was willing to get sober in order to do it. And it, at least at the beginning. Now, I ended up getting sober because I didn't want to drink anymore. It was just too horrible. And I didn't give a shit if they threw me out of the seminary or whatever. And when I went into that treatment center, I got honest. I told them anything they wanted to know, you know, because I had been raised a good Catholic. You know, and a good Catholic boys and girls are taught to lie in confession, right? You never tell the priest the whole friggin' truth, right? Even now, I, I get a kid coming to me and saying, oh, Father, you know, I'm going to tell you something you never heard of before. I said, oh, son, you know, set the bar a little lower, you know? Like, try to tell me something I haven't done before, Work up to something I haven't thought of before, and then maybe we can get to something I haven't imagined. Anyways, I've never been told anything. Very few times have I been told anything I haven't done. But we learned to lie in confession. The heart that, that when I came into the program, which was a couple of years before I got sober, right? I started going to meetings. The fifth, the fourth, and fifth step just scared the living shit out of me. Because it meant telling the truth. 
And I had been reared in a confessional religion that, that really helped people to not tell the truth, right? Um, we can go into that at length, but I'll give you one little example, like how my mother taught me how to tell the truth. I was playing with matches or something, you know, doing something wrong. I was about eight or nine years of age, and my mother, you know, the, she could smell the sulfur in the air, and sort of the devil arriving, that's probably what was going on, and she said, were you playing with matches? No, mother. Well, tell the truth and nothing will happen. Okay, I was playing with matches. You little, you know, whack, 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 you know. I learned, right? I learned. And damn if you're going to catch me telling the truth again. But anything. And, and so that fourth and fifth step really scared me. But by the time I got to treatment, I was willing to do whatever. So obviously I developed some faith in a higher power uh, or I, probably, I wouldn't have been ordained a priest and wouldn't have stayed doing that for 30 years. At the same time, I tell, when, I, when I talk, I often talk about being agnostic. And I, I'm, to a certain extent, going with the meaning of the word agnostic. Agnostic simply means don't know, no knowledge. To me, at least my understanding of, of my own spirituality and, is that I don't know who or what this higher power is. You know, I just don't know. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not denying any of the, 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 the dogma of, of Catholicism or Christianity. I'm just saying that by definition, if I know everything about my higher power, then it's not my higher power anymore. I got God right where I want him, by the short and curlies, you know? And so many of us, you know, we demand, we want to know what God is. I don't know. If I have one caveat, I mean, I don't care what religion you belong to or don't belong to. It doesn't make any difference, okay? But as soon as you get to the point where you gotta know, you know, I go to some meetings, a lot of meetings downtown, and you get, you know, people are two and a half days off crack having theological discussions about the nature of God, you know. <laughs> doesn't seem to me particularly relevant, you know, at that point, but you know, and we've heard it in AA, most of you have heard this before, but the opposite of faith is not doubt, right? Having doubts just means that you're alive and you're paying attention to life. The opposite of, of faith is fear. So to the extent that you've been relieved of fear through working the 12 steps of the program, is the extent to the development of your spirituality. Whatever that spirituality is, whatever it's focused on, you know, whatever you call God or your higher power, or don't call him, her, it, 
it doesn't really matter. One of the things that, that I've discovered is, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in my own understanding of Roman Catholicism and Christianity is, you know, people will say, well, I believe that God is in and through everything. Yep. You know, I believe God is directing our lives. Yep. I mean, there's almost, you know, there's almost no concept of God or reading of spirituality that doesn't fit in to most large religions. All of the, the religions of the world have those concepts of God within them. So when people say they don't like this concept of God, but they like this concept, they don't like this name, but they like that name, I just say, yeah, whatever, you know, doesn't really matter that much because you may be rejecting something that doesn't really work for you, right? Which is fine. In the Roman Catholicism, there's, for many people, there's a lot of reverence about the Virgin Mary, which is sort of a female goddess concept, right? And I'm not opposed to it. If I go to a, a funeral home and somebody wants me to lead the rosary, I'll lead the rosary. But it's not my spirituality. I'm not drawn to a female representation of God. You know, the female representation of God for me used to beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. God love her. <laughs> She's still alive at 94. And, you know, some things don't change. She's pretty well into dementia, which has been an improvement. <laughs> but the other day, she said, I wonder how old I am. I said, you're 94 and a half. She says, I don't think so. She says, I, and she said, it. you know, I don't know how old I am, but I'm sure that's not right. That could have been the theme of our, you know, 61-year relationship with my mother. Anyway, I am not comfortable with a female representation of God. Okay? I know lots of people, you know, if your father was an abusive, drunken asshole, and you're praying to God the Father, you got a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on there, folks. It may not be the image for you. You know, so I think that's very important is that whatever image or non-image we have, that it be uh, consistent with our experience. The other thing that I think is important is that we cannot, I think, subscribe to religious doctrine that, that is not supportive of us as human beings. So I don't know, you know, I don't think that, that women normally should, well, under, I can't imagine the circumstances under which they would buy into a religion that sort of espouses a misogynist God. And there are interpretations of many of the religions that, that have that interpretation of God. Or for gay people to, or, you know, sexual minority people to subscribe to a God who is homophobic, you know, or an interpretation of a God who's homophobic. And that can sometimes 
put some of us on the spot in terms of functioning within our own religion. There's, there's times when the more or less official interpretations can, can make it difficult for us to subscribe. But I think one of the things in AA is, and one of the beauties of it, is we get to not so much design our own God, but to design our own concept of God. Um, I want to give you one example of that that I think is very important. How am I doing for time there? I'm okay for time? Oh, no problem. <clears throat> I want to give you one interpretation, one thing that, that, that struck me a number of years ago. I, I was living in Windsor. We had a chapel in the attic to this house. That's why I remember it. And I was praying because uh, I had been principal of a school in Windsor, and it was in Mike Harris's Ontario, and it was just, anyways, I was ready to call it a day. And I was asking God to show me what it was that I was supposed to do. It, to a certain extent, that sounds like the 11th step, right? But one of the things I realized was that in doing that prayer, I had a concept of God that when I really thought about it, was kind of effed up, okay? Because what I was praying to was a God who knew what I was supposed to do next and I was supposed to figure it out, right? And so this God was sort of like, I was the rat in the maze or the mouse in the maze and God was sort of the supervisor of the maze, you know? And I'd have to hit a dead end. And I thought, what a sick, understanding of God that is. But part of it was this whole notion that I was raised with, God was all powerful, right? So if God is all powerful, why does he allow shit to happen, you know? Or why does he allow confusion or whatever? What I chose to believe after that was that God may be all powerful, but God deliberately uh, limits God's power. And one of the ways God limits God's power is he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And my God walks with me as I'm going into the future. And doesn't have some, some sort of future knowledge that I'm supposed to figure out, but is with me to help me with whatever happens. I can't make a bad decision. I cannot do the wrong... Well, I can screw up and I can certainly sin... But I can't, I can't make a, you know, I always tell kids when I'm counseling them, you know, and they say, you know, I, I think I'm going to go to engineering school, but what happens if it doesn't work out? I said, then you do something else. I, you know, you get this with sponsees too, you know, what happens if, well, well, you change your mind, you take a different direction, you know, it's no big friggin' deal, nothing's all that earth-shaking, you know. Anyways, most of the time. Sometimes we really, you know, one of, the, one of the things we have to pay attention to in our spirituality is that we have to be willing to really look at our belief systems. Really look at, there, there, there's, there's inventory that needs to go on on an ongoing basis. And I don't care whether you believe in a deity or follow a particular religion, almost everyone I run into and a lot of people who, who claim no religion or who have walked away from religion have a lot of baggage still 
from when they were kids or when they were growing up or whatever. That baggage, whatever you decide to do, needs to be dealt with. You know, you can't just sort of leave it on the back burner and pretend it doesn't exist. It's got to be dealt with. I think the other thing that we need to do in terms of our spirituality is we have to be willing to grow. Uh, I retired recently from the school business, and last uh, September, I did a 10-day uh, silent retreat uh, on meditation, meditation retreat, on an island off the coast of Scotland. You couldn't run away. <laughs> yeah, really. Not unless you were a great swimmer and had a wetsuit. Um, and, you know, it was, it was not easy, which to me indicated I was doing the right thing. It was, it was at a Buddhist retreat center, and it followed a Buddhist meditation uh, system. I don't like meditation. I'd like to say that I've done it every day since I did that retreat, but that would be unadulterated bullshit. And I don't like meditation. I won't speak for every alcoholic in here because some of you may be, you know, moving into meditation right now. I may have driven you there. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Dear God, take me out of here. Anyways. <laughs> but this alcoholic doesn't like to meditate. You know why? Because I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. You know why? They're my thoughts. <laughs> Would you want to be alone with them, you know? Would you want to be trapped in here by yourself? And yet, that's what we're challenged to do. And I think, particularly those of us with longer-term sobriety, you know, we need to be attempting to be there at least some of the time. Uh, I think growing in AA and being here and continuing to be here means growing in the spirit. However you do it, doesn't really matter. But we do it. And we do it with guidance of our sponsor. And we do it with the guidance of the people we sit around with at table at our meetings, you know? And in the end, it's all about going to meetings and not drinking and carrying the message to the next suffering alcoholic. Thank you for listening.